All right, and good morning, Rich Point Church. Again, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we're wrapping up a series today called Pick Six. I'll get into that in a second. Before we do that, uh, I just want to thank, and, and you guys can help join me in thanking uh, three guys who spoke the last three weeks. Uh, Chris handled a really tough question three weeks ago talking about end times and tried to cover all that in about 35 minutes, which is a tough conversation to have. I got a chance to hear Logan a, a couple weeks ago and him speaking on kind of killing idols in our life. And then Michael wrapping up last week with kind of a complicated, uh, multifaceted question. So if you would join me in thanking those guys for doing a great job in, in, in filling in. And, and I'm excited to be back. We're wrapping up this series. For those who are new to Ridgepoint Church or maybe you've been gone for the last couple of weeks, uh, we did something different this summer, wrapping up this morning, with a series we entitled Pick Six. And basically what we did is, t- kind of towards the beginning of the summer, wrapping up the end of last school year, we started allowing people to submit questions to us and to say, what are some things that you're dealing with? Uh, what are some questions you have maybe about the Bible, or about Christianity, about how your faith kind of works itself out? And we allowed you to submit those questions, and we kind of picked and collated six questions. And so we're going to bring those together. We're going to try to answer those questions as best we can. Now, we knew going into this, we kind of, when we started vision casting this thing, we started saying, okay, what are some of the questions that we're kind of anticipating we're going to face? And, and we knew as soon as we began vision casting what this was going to look at, or what it was going to look like, we knew there was one question that was going to come up. We knew for sure it was going to come up. And we said, if the question comes up, here's the thing, we're going to have to answer it. And it's one of those questions, and you're going to start guessing right away once I start leading into it. We're not going to get the question yet. But it's one of those questions that just because of the way uh, we tend to be about things we're passionate about, you know if we're passionate, if we're really passionate about something, we tend to be emotional about the thing we're passionate about. We kind of hold on to that and say, we're not going to let go. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not going to let go of this no matter what. And when we get really emotional about something, what tends to happen is we tend to think of people who are on the other side of, of the debate as, as the enemy. Like, if, if you're a big-time Florida State fan, I don't understand why at all. I can't, I can't grasp that concept. But if, if that's you, God has grace even for you. And, and, and I don't understand that. But, but, but you sit there and you view, okay, J.J.'s a gator. I got, I don't even, he doesn't have to tell me. I know where he's coming from. But, but we view the other person as, as they're on the other side. They're the enemy. They're hateful. And, and obviously, Florida, Florida State, it's not a big deal. But when it comes to things that are real life, we tend to be really passionate about those things. And we have a tendency to view the other person as the enemy, and, and they must be hateful if they don't agree with me. And I think one of the things we've lost as a society is the ability to have a dialogue. We think, well, if someone disagrees with me on a topic that I'm passionate about, that they are the enemy, that they're hateful. And the Bible says we're not to wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not to have the other people be the enemy. And yet that's what we have a tendency to do. And so as we get into this question this morning, as we start to have this, this, this dialogue, we need to do something. No matter which side of this debate that you're on, we need to do something. We need to set aside our own preconceived ideas. We need to set aside our own preconceived notions and say, okay, we're going to approach this as best we can. And here's our model for everything we do. Jesus Christ is the model. And so I want to begin, before we get into the question, I want to begin laying a foundation. If he's going to be our model for answering this tough question, then I want to begin by looking at, okay, who was he? How would, in order to know how he'd answer the question, we have to know who was he. So if you have your Bible, slip over to John chapter 1. There's this great section. If, if you're maybe new to church or you didn't grow up going to church and you didn't, haven't read your Bible a lot, I would encourage you, begin in John chapter 1. It is this great teaching. If, if anyone wants to know 
Who is Jesus? What about his deity or his divinity, him being God? John 1.1 is, is this great introduction to this teaching on who Jesus is. His deity is he's fully God, he's fully man. And John 1 it begins, says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And it says that it has this great teaching about who Jesus was. But we're going to pick up this morning for our purposes. We're going to pick up in John 1.14. And it says this, the word being Jesus. The word, Jesus became flesh. He became just like us. And he dwelt among us. For 33 years he lived on earth and he dwelt among us. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And that says these five words about him. Full of what? Grace and truth. It says that Jesus was full of grace and and truth, that he was the embodiment of grace and truth. And here's the thing, as we answer this question, and if you look at any specific uh, controversy that might come up, it is really easy, it's more convenient, and it's cleaner to be one or the other. And most of us, just the way that we're wired, most of us fall into one or the other. Either we're full of grace, and we really like grace. For those people who are fans of grace, it's like, you know, if, if, if you're a parent, you tend to be the one who says, oh, it doesn't matter what you did, I love you anyway, and we're just going to figure it out. Don't worry about all those mistakes that you made, because I'm just oozing grace. And for a lot of us, we love grace, and, and, and especially if, if, if God's looking at us and the sin that we have, he looks down at us, we say, God, at the point that you're dealing with my sin, I want you to be full of grace. But when I'm talking about another person's sin, God, I want you to be full of truth. And there are some parents today, you're full of truth, and you say, we can't get past this issue until we figure this out. And we want to be full of one or the other. But in John 1, 14, it comes talking about Jesus, and it says that he is the full embodiment of both grace and truth. And that means when it comes to specific situations that came up in his life, there's times that we read stories. If you read through the Gospels... If you read some of the stories with, with fresh eyes, maybe you grew up going to church and, and you said, I've, I've heard all these stories before. But if we read these through fresh eyes, there's some stories that kind of can, can boggle our mind a little bit. Because Jesus was the full embodiment of grace and, and truth. He wasn't equal portions of both. That would be convenient. That would be easy. But he's the full embodiment of both grace and truth at the same time. And so because of that, there's times that we expect him to exude grace, and truth comes up, and we're like, well, I wasn't expecting that. And there's other times we say, I didn't expect him to respond with so much grace. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus is coming up, and I'm going to reference the story a little bit later, but to give us a little bit of the the back plot of what's happening, Jesus is coming up to a a tax collector. Now, tax collectors in Jesus' day, if you could imagine, the worst than tax collectors now. Like, that's how bad it was. Nobody liked tax collectors. They were stealing. They were robbing. They were purposely cheating people out of their money. And the thing was, for those tax collectors, whatever they could cheat people out of, they got to pocket themselves. And so Jesus is traveling, and there's this tax collector, and he sees him, and he, and he brings him down, and he starts to talk to him. And, and all of his disciples would have been like, dude, what are you doing? This guy's terrible. I don't want to be seen around this person. And Jesus says, not only are we going to be seen around him, we're about to go to his house. Why would Jesus show grace to that person? Like, that, that, doesn't, that seems to work against how most of us want to be wired. That guy was a bad guy. I don't want to be seen around him. And yet there's another story where there's a rich man that comes to Jesus. And he seems really passionate. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And at this point, if, if you're, like, especially if you're involved in church work, if you're a pastor, you're thinking, this guy has just come forward. Like, he's ready to raise his hand and, and pray a prayer. Like, this guy is ready to give his life to Jesus. And Jesus says it's harder for a rich man. It's harder for the camel to fit through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And we say, wait a minute. At that moment, I was expecting grace. And I get truth. And here's the thing. When we start to answer these questions, it would be really easy, clean, and convenient to say, when I come to these issues, I'm either going to be fully over here in the, in, the, in the truth camp, and I'm going to answer strictly based upon truth, and there's no grace. Or, I'm going to be over in, in, in this camp, and I'm going to be full of, of grace. Either full of truth and no grace, or full of grace and no truth. But Jesus comes, and he says, I'm the full embodiment of, of both those things. And so because of that, when we deal with these issues, sometimes... Life can get messy. Sometimes it can't be as, as convenient as we'd like it to be. So John 1.14 says, The Lord became flesh, dwelt among us, that he's full of grace and truth. John 15 has kind of this parenthetical pause in the middle of it. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. But then in verse 16 it says, For from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. In our life today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you're following him, you've received that outpouring of grace upon grace. You've experienced that. And we now live, because of what he did, we now live in that grace upon grace. And verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So back here we read in the Old Testament, we read especially the first five books of the Bible, we have the law given to us from Moses. And we say the law was birthed with Moses, but literally in the Gospels it says about Jesus but grace and truth came from, or quite literally, was born from Jesus. So Jesus comes as a full embodiment of grace and truth. He comes bringing grace and truth. And so when we handle the question that we're about to face, we have to, if we're going to be consistent with the message that he has for us, we have to figure out, even in controversial issues, how do we answer in a way that brings grace and truth? With that being, some of you already thought ahead, you know what the question is by now. But here's the question. How should Christians respond to the homosexual controversy? If we're living in modern-day United States, we know this is a big deal. This is a big topic. But how do Christians respond to that? Real, flip, real quick, flip over to John chapter 13, because we've received, I think, one or two questions that came directly from this, but then other conversations were had people say, what about this? How do we handle this? So we kind of collated that, that question to one question, but I'm going to change it in just a second. Because in John 13, verse 34 and 35, we read this. Because if we just answer, go, go back to the question for one second. If we just look at the question for one second, how should Christians respond to the homosexual controversy? If you pay attention all to, to media, you know that there are churches that are responding all across the board. They're responding very differently. So if, if we ask the question, how are Christians responding, it would be, be across the board, running in the gamut of different responses. But the question that was asked or kind of collated together was how should Christians respond to that? But there's, I'm going to alter that in just a second. Because in John 13, verse 34, we read this. It says, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If you have been around Ridgepoint Church at all, we reference these verses a lot. Jesus says, by this, the world's going to know that you're my disciples. If we ask the question, how should Christians respond, the, the response is going to be kind of across the board as well. Because Christians respond differently. 
The name Christian, the term Christian was first used in a city called Antioch. And it was actually used in the Bible, is was, was used as a derogatory term. It meant little Christ's. And the disciples of Jesus are running around. They're trying to follow his teachings. They're trying to live it out. And so people trying to mock them said, look at those Christians. They're a bunch of little Christ. Let's make fun of them. Well, at some point, the church embraced that and ran with the name. And, and today, a lot of people are, are proud to use that name. And, and we are as well. But the term Christian has become somewhat watered down. And so I want to ask a different question of us this morning. Not very similar, but not quite the same. But also the question just a little bit. The secondary question is this. How should disciples of Jesus respond to the homosexual controversy? I don't know if you're paying attention to those two questions, but even when I asked them, I felt like a a different level of seriousness to the question. How should Christians respond? Well, I hear that bantered about in the media all the time. But if I ask the question, because it says here in John 13, 34 and 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you do this, if you have love one for another. And once we have love for one another as believers and as disciples of Jesus, then that love necessarily is, is, is now shared with the world around us. So we've been receivers and partakers of that grace upon grace. And now that we have love for one another, we also have a love for the world around us. And so we ask the question, and the question isn't as easy as we'd like it to be. Because there are a lot of people today that are in the truth camp, and they say, I know how we need to respond I know how we, they get really mad, they get fired up and say, this is how we should respond. They get really angry and they hold up signs making fun of people. I think somehow that's going to win an argument. And there are others that are over here saying, we're so judgmental as Christians, we just need to let everyone live their own life and be peaceful. And if they want to do whatever they want to do, have at it. All grace and, and no truth. But if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we have to learn to walk as he walked. Be the full embodiment of of grace and truth. And so as we have this discussion, I'm going to ask, because a lot of us are passionate about this on one side or the other. I'm going to ask us to be gracious. To set aside those preconceived ideas, those preconceived notions. And say, I want to approach this and say, I want to literally ask the question. If Jesus were walking around in modern day United States, how would he respond to this? And we know, we knew as soon as the question was thought of, as soon as we knew the question was going to come up, we knew that there there, there was a potential landmine. You see pastors who who spoke about this 15 years ago. There was a pastor, Louis Giglio, spoke about this topic 15 years ago. And he was supposed to pray at President Obama's inauguration last time. And someone pulled up a sermon he preached. It was in a podcast from 15 years ago where he said something about this. And everybody got up in arms and eventually he just said, I, I'm going to decline the invitation so I don't cause controversy. It's not about me anyway. And so we knew this was a potential landmine. It was a potential landmine for a couple of different reasons. Number one, and this is really important, number one is because anytime culture and Scripture collide and they don't agree, every time that happens, we're going to side with Scripture. As a church, we believe, we started off this series talking about what do we believe about the Word of God, we, or about the Bible. We believe it is the Word of God, and here's uh, handling those contradictions and all that stuff. So anytime culture and and scripture collide and they disagree, 100% of the time we are going to side with scripture. That being said, realize throughout the course of of human history, the last couple thousand years, there have been times that the church has said culture and our interpretation of scripture are colliding. That's not what I'm talking about. There's times that we interpret scripture wrongly. If that's true, that's on us. So it's not if culture and our understanding of scripture collide, 
But 100% of the time that culture and Scripture collide, 100% of the time we are going to side with Scripture. And so the reason why it's a landmine is because we're saying we're going to stand upon God's word. If, if God's word says it, then that's where we're going to base our set and our system of belief. But the second reason why this is a potential landmine, and I'm just being real and being honest. The second reason why this is a potential landmine is because that historically, especially the last 50 to 100 years, the church has done a terrible job of handling this question. We've seen that. We've, if you've been around at all, you've seen the people that go and protest military funerals and, and they get all fired up and they get ramped up and they use derogatory terms. And historically, they've done a poor job. The church has done a poor job handling this issue. But even recently, in the last couple months, the Supreme Court verdict came down. Here's what I saw. It was back in, in June that the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is going to be legal across the board, across our country. And it happened on a, on a Friday. I believe it was a Friday morning. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of uh, insider's view of, of what happens most weeks at church. It's true here. I'm assuming it's true at most churches. Uh, the way we work, we actually, Friday is our day off. We're not in the office most of the time on Fridays. Uh, so by Friday, we already, we, we've prayed through. We've got set up for that weekend. By Friday, I have my, my message already downloaded to my iPad. I'm ready to go. I take Friday off, and I try to get, kind of get recharged, get ready again Saturday for Sunday morning. And, and so by Friday, my message is done. I've prayed through saying, God, I believe this is what you have for us to present this week. Well, that week in particular, I, I saw the verdict came down on Friday, and, and, and I saw a bunch of pastors that I'm friends with on Facebook, and there's this pastor's group, and they got really ramped up about this, and everyone went through, and, and I'm not being critical because sometimes God can change our messages. That's not it at all. But a lot of people said, all week long, God has kind of prepared me for this message, but now I'm going to go ahead and scrub that message because I feel like I have to comment on this right now. And that's fine. If that's what God led them to do, I totally understand that. But I saw responses, other than I saw one response that was, that was a really good response. But I saw a lot of responses, just kind of categorizing them as best I could, where they did one of two things. Either their response was a response of fear, saying, oh no, how could this have happened? Like it, like it came out of nowhere. And they seemed shocked by the whole thing. It's almost as if God was sitting up and he had a holy council. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're meeting together and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, newsflash. The Supreme Court justice has just met and this whole thing just happened. And it's almost, the way I saw some people respond, it's almost like it took God by surprise. Listen, God is still sovereign. He's still in control. He knew this was going to happen. And there's sometimes we as a church, uh, there's some political thing that pops up. And 40 years ago it was Roe versus Wade. And oh no, this is the end. God's no longer in control. Listen, God's still in control. He knew this was going to happen. Take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. And the other response was a little more prevalent. Because I think some of us probably felt this way. But felt like, oh no, this is, this is a dark day. There seems like there's all this darkness hovering now. And all these bad decisions are being made. And we're going to blame this person. We're going to point our finger at that person. And, and, and it seemed like a dark day. Well, listen, if it is darkness that's happening, we need to learn to praise God for that. Because it's in the midst of darkness that our light can now shine the brightest. That's what we have to see is if, if that's true, if that's what's happening, it's not doomsday, it's not the end of the world. Instead, we say this is now an opportunity. The world has seen the church respond in terrible ways in the past. Now, this is our chance to respond and say, God, how in the midst of this situation that's happening, how can we respond brightest? We do that by responding with grace and with truth. 
Let's begin by talking about the truth side of that. Some people are going to get fired up and say, yeah, let's, we want to hit talking about truth. Let's talk about that for a second. And let's remove rhetoric for a second from the conversation. Let's remove what people are saying. Let's just talk about, because one of the questions, kind of a secondary question that we picked up when we, answered, when we had these questions submitted to us, was what exactly does the Bible say about the topic of homosexuality? That's probably the most pertinent question we can face because we can sit here and say, well, the church says this, and the church down the road, they think one thing, and the church that's right here says another thing. And and I know what the church says, but let's get back just a second to what the Bible says about this. So if you have your Bible, we're going to flip through this real quick. If not, the words will appear up on the screen. But we're looking at a couple of different scriptures. There's actually much more than this. We don't have time to get through all this. We'd be here all day long. But in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it says this. You shall not, it's talking to men, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Seems pretty clear cut. There's, there's no gray area there. He says it's not right. Some people look at that and say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. There's a bunch of stuff that was in the Old Testament that not necessarily, necessarily carries over the New Testament. It was a different era, all these different things. That's fine. Over in Romans, which happens to be in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, says this, For this reason... God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Seems also pretty clear cut. Old Testament, New Testament teaching this idea that these things ought not to be done. And yet we know there's a debate that's raging, and there's, there's another side to it. We're going to get to that in a second. But there's a debate that's raging. But what about when people are just created that certain, a certain way, or they, they're created that way? Years ago, and if we think as adults, if you're over the age of, maybe even not adults, maybe if you're over 25 years old, if we think it's hard for us to answer these, these questions and deal with this controversy in our own heart, it's even harder for the younger generation. They're already dealing with heavy stuff, and then they're dealing with a culture that seems to go sometimes against Scripture, and, and, and they're really battling this battle in their heart. And so because of that, a lot of these discussions happen a whole lot more in, in the youth culture and the young adult culture than they even happen in those that are over 25 years old or so. A few years ago, I had a chance that there was a, a guy that's coming to our youth group. He's in high school. There's a guy that's coming to our youth group, and, and he openly was, was battling homosexuality and bisexuality and all the stuff that came with it. And he came, he was, he was comfortable enough to have a discussion about this. And, and there's one day he specifically asked, we go to, go to lunch, I got some questions. I said, yeah. So we went out to lunch and we're talking at, at a McDonald's, I think it was. And, and he said, he said here's, here's my question. He said, I know what the Bible says. But I also know how I feel. And I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And he didn't know it, but he was actually scratching at the surface of a question that I think that we're not really engaged with enough. Because if you just listen to the media and what's out there, we say, well, science is dictating that people are, are born this way, and who are we to judge? And I get that side of it. But here's the thing. I think most of us are, are born with a predispensation to certain acts, certain urges that are outside of God's bounds. Uh, for, for everyone, it's going to be different, but most of us have certain urges. Uh, in fact, I would say this. I get a chance to talk to a lot of men, a lot of young men, uh, a lot of young men that are married. And, and if I were to ask them honestly to answer this question, at this point, wives, don't look at your husbands and wonder if it was them. But if I were to ask them this question, if I were to ask them, if you've been married for any length of time, if you were to be honest, 
Has there ever been a time where you've had an urge towards someone that isn't your wife? I see wives right now looking at their husbands. <laughs> I think most men, if they were honest, maybe they haven't even thought about it themselves, but they'd probably be honest and say, yeah, there's been some point. And wives, don't be mad at your husbands because the urge itself isn't what's wrong. It's when we submit to that urge. See, every one of us, we have a predisposition towards sin, some with a stronger predisposition towards certain sin. Just because we have an urge to do something doesn't mean it's right for us to try to fulfill that urge and doesn't mean that's the way that God wired us. We have this science of urge right now. That's what seems to be behind the science. Well, they have, they have an urge towards the same-sex attraction. That's fine. Guys can have an urge towards someone who wasn't their wife. That doesn't, that doesn't mean they act on it. In fact, maturity says... I don't necessarily act on those urges just because I feel like that's the right thing to do. But I search that out and say, God, was that urge put in my heart by you? And if it wasn't, then i got to figure out a way in my life to reconcile that and work that out. So we talked that through, and it was a difficult conversation. And I'm not sure in his mind it alleviated his concerns. But I go back, if I believe this, and I believe this is true, then I rest on that. But there's one more verse I want to share, and this is really important for us. If, if, you're, if you're strong on the side of truth, if you're getting excited about this part of the message, there's one more verse I want to share. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, it says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's those people outside the church. It's not my position to judge people outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There's accountability within the church. If someone's a believer and they start to struggle with this, that's a different conversation. But for us to sit behind street signs and, and hold up post, posters protesting, saying, we don't agree and we're going to hate you because of the decisions you're making, we're going directly in conflict with Scripture. It's not for us to judge outside those that are outside the church. In fact, my responsibility is only to walk through the doors right now and say, this is who I am Listen, I'm glad you're here. We're going to love you. We're going to extravagantly love you. We're going to care about you because my goal is not for you to come in and figure out some five-step program to fix you. My goal is one thing, to introduce you to Jesus. That's all that matters. If he wants to clean you up, if he wants to fix you, that's on him. My goal is to introduce you to the one who set me free. And that's our goal as a church is to figure out a way to lovingly respond and say, I know what Jesus did in my life. And my goal is not to fix you. In fact, anybody who comes in the door, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's this, if they're struggling with alcoholism, it doesn't matter if they're struggling with pornography. Our goal is not to come in and figure out a way to fix them. I think as a church, this is where we failed to respond accurately. We said, if that's what you're dealing with, we're going to give you a 10-step program, and we're going to fix you and figure you out, and then invite you to come to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, come to Jesus just like you are. And he's going to be the one who cleans up the rest of our life. And a lot of us have sins that are just as dangerous. And we want to point out other people's sin and say, you're really bad because I don't understand that lifestyle. My sin is just as valid, just as damaging. We can't point out one sin. And, and, and is it wrong? Yes. Jesus called sin, sin. And then he died for it. I have no problem talking to someone and saying, if, if you want to know what God says about this, God says you ought not do it. Romans said that clearly. But it's not my position to be the one who's in judgment of you or to condemn you. My goal is to point you to Jesus. I believe he has a better plan for your life. If you want to have that conversation, let's have that conversation. This is going to be up to Jesus to fix this about your life. 
people. The truth side is, is powerful. The grace side is just as powerful. See, when, when I was a young youth pastor, um, th- there was there's guy, and, and he actually had a, a tender heart. He, he was an older guy. He was, he was a, a retired guy, and he became a janitor at our church. And he had a, had a tender heart, but he had a really, really gruff exterior, like really gruff exterior. And he didn't understand culture. He was, he was probably in his 70s. And, and this was 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, culture was very different than it is now. And 55 years before that, culture was way different as he was growing up. But he came to me one time. I sit in my office. And he, I don't even know. He came fired up about culture. And he's just gruff. He's complaining. I don't understand culture these days. And I don't understand those gays and all this stuff. And I'm like, whoa, where does this come from? Like, what, what are you talking about? And then he says, he's like, don't they know that's the, the, the one sin in the Bible that God calls an abomination? Well, have you guys seen, like, people post stuff up on Facebook where it's like, this has to be true because I saw an article, and you're like, I need to go, like, Snopes that out and see if that actually is accurate because people are popping up stuff all the time. I said, let me go. We didn't have Snopes back then, but we had something much better than Snopes. So my buddy walks in. He says, he says, that's the only sin God calls an abomination. I said, okay, let me go do some research. He came back to me an hour later, and I had a list of things. I said, you know, you, you made a statement, and I'm not, not trying to be mean or disrespectful, but I got a list of sins in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that God calls an abomination. This wasn't that list, but this was someone else produced a list. But, but here's some other sins in the Bible that God calls an abomination. Cheating is an abomination. A proud look. A lying tongue. A false witness. Offering an imperfect animal for sacrifice. It's an abomination. Making idols. Robbery. Murder. Adultery. Violence, breaking vows, having a hard heart, and probably 30 more that the Old Testament God calls an abomination. So this guy says, don't they know that's the one sin the Bible calls an abomination? I, I said, no, there's, there's a lot more. And we're really busy pointing out other people's sin and we're missing our own. Grace demands that even though Jesus calls sin, sin, he dies for that sin. And it's not up to us. We can sit there and have a conversation and say, yeah, the Bible says you ought not do that. But it's not my position to be the one that condemns you. See, in the story that I referenced earlier, if you could imagine being an early disciple of Jesus, and, and you're walking with him, and he's getting to hang out with some of the coolest people. Like, there are people influential. There are people that are really passionate about his mission. And so you're getting to hang out with cool people. And then Jesus comes up. The guy hanging up in the tree was named Zacchaeus. And Jesus comes up, and no one wants to spend time with Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. Everybody kind of hates him. And in fact, the disciples would have been sitting there saying, wait a minute, Jesus. You want to talk to this tax collector? If we're seen in his realm altogether, if we're anywhere near him, it's going to start to damage our reputation considerably. Like, Jesus, I don't even want to be seen near him, and you're having this conversation with him. Can we leave and go on and talk to somebody else? And Jesus says, not only are we going to spend time with him, but wait until this evening because we're going to be hanging out at his house and, and, and his friends are going to be there. We're going to get a chance to talk to them because that's what I'm supposed to be about. And there are people who said, well, but that's going to damage my reputation. When we become more worried about guarding our reputation than we are about people, we've abandoned the mission. See, some of us today, we know people that we need to associate with. And if Jesus has poured grace upon grace in our life, then we should be, as, as disciples of Jesus, we should be the ones running into the burning building 
with grace on our backs saying, who is it that we can save? Who is it right now that I can come with the grace that God has shown in my life? Who is it that I can go and I can rescue? Because rescued people rescue people. And it doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter if if other people who are religious will look at you and point their finger at you and judge you because you're having a conversation with someone who lives a different lifestyle than they approve of. That's who we're supposed to love. Because that's us. We differentiate sin. God doesn't. So if we're more interested in guarding our reputation than we are in people, we've abandoned the mission that God has for us. And... People get fired up and say, we need to win this debate. We need to win this argument. Listen, just the way culture is going, I'm not sure we're going to win the debate. But if we're more interested in winning an argument than we are in winning people, we've also abandoned the mission. Some of us get fired up and say, we need to win this argument. We need to win this debate. Listen, we don't have to win any debate. No matter what happens, God's still sovereign. He's in control. My goal has to be to love people and to win them to the good news of who Jesus is. See, when, a long time ago, probably going back 10 years, there's another student that's in our youth group, another guy that's in our youth group. He would never say I was struggling with homosexuality. He was as flamboyant as could be. He let everybody know. He was in the drama team at school, and he was really excited about that and really excited about it. And, and he didn't come to youth group on a regular basis. He had some friends, some girls that were in our youth group that he was friends with that were in the drama club with him. And so they came to youth group. So every once in a while, sporadically, he would come to youth group from time to time. And everybody knew his background. Everyone knew where he was where he was coming from, and we just chose to love him exactly where he was. And after a couple of months, I knew his name was Michael. I hadn't seen Michael in a couple of months, and, and I knew they were preparing. It was the senior year. They had the big end-of-the-year play, and they had a lot of time being put into that. And we had a lot of girls in the youth group that were, that were in that same play. So my wife and I go to, uh, go to that, that play at the end of the year, and at the end, like, everyone's down front. You're kind of greeting them, saying what a good job they did, no matter how good about it was you're going to say that but it actually was it was a really good play and, and, and so we're down front and, and I'd seen the girls in our youth group and we're kind of giving them high fives and hugs and all that stuff and then I saw Michael and there's a thing if, if you're walking especially as a pastor if you're walking around in, in the community and you see someone that hasn't been to church in a while most people's response when they see you is like do one of these <laughs> and that's kind of what I expected I hadn't seen Michael in a couple of months and I thought Michael like we're, it's not like we have a really good relationship anyway he's come around a couple of times but I kind of expected just he's at school, he's hanging out with his friends. He's going to kind of ignore seeing the youth pastor. But Michael sees me. And, and like he's there with his parents. He comes running up and gives me a hug. He says, Mom, Dad, this is my youth pastor. And I, I thought like I, I wouldn't have expected that at all because like I said, he hadn't been to church in months. But yeah, he's still identified. And he still said, this is still a place that I come. And I don't agree with everything that they do. But I still identify with, with this guy as, as our youth pastor. That's what we need to be about. Because, listen, I probably messed up a lot of stuff when it came to that whole situation. But our goal is, is to love as Jesus loved, to, to share truth. We can't shy away from truth. There's some of you that love grace. We talked about the truth side, and you started, your hair started to bristle. You got, like, really pumped up and furious about that or whatever. But then on the grace side is to say we need to have a balance of both. We need to have truth. We can't shy away from that. It's wrong. We ought not do it. And if that's you, if you're struggling with that sin today, I'm telling you right now, you ought not do it. But there's still on the other side, there's grace. God still loves you. He doesn't condemn you. He died for that sin. He wants you to fix that. 
So our response, we have those conversations. How should a disciple of Jesus respond? We respond with grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in all of our lives, if we're truly disciples of yours, I thank you that at some point in the past we became aware that our sin has separated us from you. But that, God, you didn't condemn us because of that sin, but you died for that sin. And, God, as you have shown us grace, we deal today with a sensitive topic, a topic people are passionate about. And we can't shy away from the scripture that says it is wrong and it's not the way you created us. But on the same side, we're also not going to be the ones who condemn. We're going to present truth in a graceful way. Because, God, as we point people to Jesus, as you let them know who he really is, I believe, just like he's done in so many of our lives, that he begins to clean us up. God, for most of us, that's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. That's a process that has to happen. And so, God, I pray, maybe this morning there's someone that's, that's struggling specifically with this sin. Maybe they're struggling with homosexuality, bisexuality, or, or maybe it's something even beyond that. Maybe it's a lust issue or, or pornography or adultery. God, sin is sin, and you died to free us up from that sin. And so, God, my prayer this morning is if that is someone, give them absolute freedom this morning. Let them be victorious over that sin. And, God, as we look for a response as a church, I pray as best we can that you absolutely allow us to be full of truth in our life, but that you also allow us to be the full embodiment of grace. And, God, I know that's not always clean. It's not always easy to figure out answers. There's times Jesus responds as we expect. There's times he doesn't. God, help us to figure out the best and appropriate response in every situation and then exude Jesus as much as we can. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.